Okay, we're started. So welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Scott Shepard, the host of the City's First podcast. And myself and the City's First podcast are happy to kick off and host the inaugural episode of the City's First webinar. How creative. <laughs> so the City's First uh, webinar is uh, very excited to have for our first episode the theme of decarbonization of the transport sector. And with that, we have three outstanding global thought leaders in the decarbonization and transport and urbanism sector, lending their voices to really this um, uh, pressing issue in terms of the transformation of urbanism, as well as how we uh, reach net zero. So with that, I'll just do um, uh, some brief uh, intros and bios, and then we'll just kick it off with the usual city's first format of going through our series of four or five questions and kind of have this uh, roundtable discussion. So with that, uh, just to give a little bit of uh, background on who we're speaking with here, I first have uh, Tia Gordon. So she's the chief operating officer of uh, It's Electric out of Brooklyn, New York City in the US. So really happy to have Tia with us. Next is Jennifer Lenhart, PhD. So she is global lead with uh, WWF cities, and I believe you're based in Chile right now, but normally you're based in Sweden. Um, so yeah. she's joining us as well, too. And then finally, we have Stephen Lorimer, who's the head of Clean Energy Cities at the Center for Net Zero. And Stephen, I believe you're based in the UK. So with that, we're just going to jump right in. Uh, we just have a really quick format here, and then we'll go through our topics, uh, which I believe we've already posted on social media. So the first question uh, we're going to kick it off is around um, and then welcome everyone. Welcome Tia, Jennifer and Stephen. We're really happy to have you here. So thank you. Um, so with that, uh, the first question um, I'm going to ask for Jennifer is how can we trans transform the transport sector to meet our decarbonization goals? Hmm. That's a great and very big question, um, Scott. So how? Um, I think it, it's there's no silver bullet answer on this. I mean, definitely EVs is a big part of that. Uh, I myself I haven't owned a car since I was 16 and, and living in the United States. So I've been car free the whole time. So um, I think we need to put people first. Um, and in cities, that's going to be a lot pertaining to walking, to cycling, certainly also access to a good public transport network. And when that is not available to have access to, uh, to good infrastructure for electric vehicles. Uh, within WWF's perspective, uh, we work with cities around the globe. We have something called the One Planet City Challenge, where we work with cities to do their data reporting. And then we see, you know, within that, which sectors do they need to address uh, in order to align their cities to the Paris Agreement and the 1.5 degrees Celsius um, global warming target. Uh, and transportation is a is a big, big issue for cities. I mean, transportation globally is, I think, about 25% of our emissions. I'm a little rough on my statistics coming just off maternity leave. Um, but, you know, in cities, it can be much, much more than that. Uh, and how we plan our city uh, also influences what kind of transportation we use. Uh, I spent five years uh, living in Amsterdam. I did my uh, PhD research there. And every single time I got on my bicycle, I fell in love with that city 
all over again. So it wasn't just about getting me around my city, but creating a relationship with my city. And of course, sometimes it can rain. So you put on a rain jacket. Um, but at the same time, I recognize that I have been thankfully uh, an able-bodied person, uh, which means I could very easily get around my city on my bicycle or by walking. And so not everyone can do that. Uh, so we have to make sure that we have access to those different resources uh, in order to really move forward. So I'm going to wrap up there because I want to make sure that Stephen has a, a chance to speak as well. But, you know, what, how can we transform? It's everything all at once. And there's not one singular solution for one singular city. Um, you have to see it kind of collectively, um, but put people at the center. Um, and then that's going to be a lot of it will come with walking and bicycling, uh, but it will also be about a better public transportation grid and, and new technology, but also old technology. Um, I'll stop there for now. No silver bullet. Yeah, that's right. No silver bullet. Lots mm -hmm. of silver bullets. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right, Stephen, what do you think? Uh, Jennifer, you're tempting the question that always comes from an interviewer, like, give me one silver silver bullet in summary. Uh, that's uh, that's always the question that, that comes. Uh, so thanks for everyone having and, and great to connect, be connected to someone in Stockholm. I went last went to an energy conference when I stayed in Hammerby Stostad and to, just to check out exactly what what actually was going on in that neighborhood uh, back in the 90s. Um, we and Center for Net Zero are part of Ospos Energy, which is an energy supplier within nine countries around the world. So we have a lot of data about how people have been using uh, EV charging in, and, and low carbon technologies in general, because we are really centered on how the energy transition is going to be functioning in the future and how our research will uh, will will feel that, and what I mean, what the reason why I established clean energy cities as a program within Center for Net Zero is because uh, cities are going to be in the lead of the energy transition, just like they've been in the lead of the transition, uh, uh, the transition for transports, uh, and these things will be very much tied together, and and the electrification of tra of transport is really one crucial part of how of the three ways that. And I'm going to quote Greg Clark, who's a great thinker and, and the chair of the Connected Places Catapult in here in the UK, are the three ways that kind of the decarbonization and decentralization of the energy sector kind of really feeds into uh, how cities and transport work together. I mean, the first thing that you can do in cities that you can't do by taking a sector-based approach to either transport or energy or housing or anything else is behavior change. Like cities can do behavior change and 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 working with people like no other uh, no other kind of body can. The second part is that cities they can they can actually get co benefits from electrification of transport into air quality into the way that the way that the, the tourism sector is going to improve in that uh, in, in areas because it's better quality of life and better streets and spaces uh, to be inside because it's not dirty and noisy noisy in the future. And the third part is that you'll actually start to get cross financing of the of of um, investments in the electrification of transport, bi-directional charging, change in, in installation of char of charge points, and other kinds of electrification of transport from all the other people that benefit from this. So those things are really start to come together uh, to really push the electrification of transport as something that isn't you can't just you know that you just aren't going to be dependent on uh the transport sector or the energy sector to finance it itself you can get the whole uh ecosystem of investments in a city to to look at it to look at it as well 
when when we think about how people are going to be using EV charging in the future, you have to first of all, as soon as you plug in plug in an EV, it is a thousand light bulbs. It is a scale of electricity use per minute that we don't normally think about when we like it's eight times an appliance like a washing machine it's much it's much bigger so you be so it's a big ticket item that you have to be very careful with the energy transition because you will be fueled by renewable energy you want evs to be fueled by renewable energy not by gas powered uh gas powered stations so we need to we need people to use their EVs in a way where they are using it when the sun is shining when uh, or when nuclear power is is available in in, in the in the in the evenings, uh, and so we need to uh, we need to be able to do uh, do that as well. And I think we'll touch on that with automation in in, in the future. Uh, the other the other part is that an EV battery can power a house for a week, and so when you actually have stress on an electricity grid, the temptation temptation the quotation marks of of uh, of energy networks. To fire up those coal power stations, fire up other things because it's a peak demand that's ha that's happening. That's the opportunity for almost kind of infinite number of microgrids to start happening from uh, from uh, from EV batteries that uh, EV, battery, EV batteries fueling buildings in the in the future. Uh, and inside here in the UK, for example, uh, there's a lot of policy developments around what's called vehicle dex technology. How do you actually have uh, vehicles connected to the grid? Or to buildings, or to any other kind of assets that you have in the in the built environment, uh, to either charge charge them to be used as, for transport, or actually be be a resource when energy is scarce. And that is kind of the one of the big revolutions that we'll have from transport is people will be buying electric vehicles or investing in electric buses, not because it's a energy resource because it's a utility and the, the and the battery is like there available as as, as something uh, that's that is almost an added extra which will help power our cities in the future so that's this real kind of opportunity that we have uh, between those and especially in big global north cities and kind of really growing global south cities you know, we have different kind of recommendations how they approach uh, the energy transition and transport at the same at the same time we could be talking about EV charging districts where you know only EVs are allowed to help balance the energy grid and make them more available. You could you could be talking about you know you could be talking about uh, allowing access to buildings that have a lot of rooftop solar for EV charging that is really cheap because it's more than what the building could generate. So you have those kinds of suggestions that you have for cities to try to integrate the transport uh, the, the transport sector into the energy sector, into the rest of the built environment as part of the energy transition. Positive externalities and behavioral change. I think those are the two takeaways I got at a very high level. I think that uh, really can uh, lead this transition. So thank you, Stephen, for that. That's really important stuff. Um, so the next question I'd like to um, hand this off to Tia is what modes will get us to net zero quickest? Thanks, Scott. Um, so. I love saying the expression, everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, and I think that's definitely what we need to do. I'm I'm an odd bird. I'm, I've started an EV charging company. I live in New York City. I live in Brooklyn. I live in an apartment, but I cycle everywhere. Um, and, you know, I've been stuck behind very, very, very <laughs> poor emissioned qualified buses. I have been stuck behind cars. Um, and so my desire to, you know, bring EV charging into cities is not to bring more cars onto the street. That's not the goal here. The goal is to help, 
move everyone to cleaner forms of transportation as fast as possible. So that's cycling, that's walking, but that also is taking the existing transportation that exists and making sure that we can convert that to electric in the fastest way possible, the most scalable way possible. So for me, um, to be able to do this, you know, we need to think about what's being left on the table in terms of EV charging in the United States. And that's the 40 million drivers who live in cities who do not have access to driveways or garages. 80% of all EV charging right now happens at home. And that assumption is that those homes have that off-street parking, um, but they don't, not when you live in a city. So right now, what has happened is that there's been this huge wealth barrier that's been erected if you wanted to drive electric vehicles in the city. Um, I wanna actually start to remove even the cost component of electric vehicles. There was a great uh, redaction in the LA Times put in, I think a day or two ago, that pointed out that we have to stop talking about sort of like the average purchase price of a, of a, of a new EV and assuming that we're using high-end Tesla and Polestar, you can get a Chevy Bolt, for example, using the federal subsidy for $20,000 right now. So, you know, it's we don't need to kind of hold the price point of EVs as the barrier. The barrier in cities right now is charging. So it's really about trying to create ways for people to be able to charge in cities where they're not having to pay, for example, in a borough like Manhattan, $800 a month for a spot in a garage that has an EV charger. So how do we find solutions that bring equity to the EV charging equation? And that is a big part of the factor of how cities can start to move greener, faster everywhere. Reduce that barrier to entry and mm -hmm. uh, kind of move beyond kind of the, the paradigm, which is that it's just the price point for the vehicles and the actual physical infrastructure. So really great point. So Jennifer, what are your thoughts on this uh, same question? Well, I love that Tia mentioned that she's a, a cyclist working on EV technology, which is fantastic. Um, and it's definitely a key part of the solution here. Um, given that there's so much passion for it, I will just take a, a different side of the, the discussion and just, you know, to remind us of the importance of interconnectivity uh, between cities. Um, you know, Europe is having kind of a revitalization about on rail um, and especially high-speed rail. And how can we bring that? Because that's a very important part of uh, transport nodes. I know we're talking a lot about cities here, but people don't just stay in the city. I mean, for me, one of the greatest things about living in the city is to get out of the city and then come back and be so happy that I live in the city. Um, and uh, at the moment, I find myself in Santiago, Chile. Uh, and there's also a discussion uh, about revitalizing their rail. Uh, it's a very long country. They would be very much benefited from a, a stronger rail system, um, but it's not the case right now. Uh, in Sweden, uh, there's a where I'm normally based, um, there's a big push to stay on the ground. And in order to stay on the ground, you need to have access to that good rail. And then once you get to the train station that you can then move around. And whether it's by micromobility solutions that are quickly accessible, or um, when you're a tourist or when you're whether you're walking or if you're living there and you have an EV um, in, in neither or in either of those countries, I haven't owned a car. But what we have benefited from is car sharing systems. And so when when Tia is speaking, I'm starting to think, you know, how that's great. I wish we had access to um, here in Santiago in Chile to electric cars uh, to when we're doing car sharing systems. Right now we don't, but hopefully we will soon uh, being inspired by a lot of these other cities. Um, so again, I think it's it's really about connectivity. Um, being that we are a global organization working with cities around the globe, yeah, there are no silver solutions. Um, but you know, it's really about learning and sharing and seeing how each of these connects to a, a bigger city puzzle. 
and one size certainly does not fit all. I think it has to be region specific, contextual specific, city specific, et cetera. So we can't take Absolutely. this copy paste approach. Um, so the next question, uh, I think we're have a nice healthy pace here, um, is around elect uh, electrification autonomy. So the question is, I'll hand this off to you again, Tia, is how do we leverage electrification and autonomy tech for the greater good? Very broad question. All right, I'm not going to take the autonomy side of this. I'm sure. going to take the, the greater good side okay. of this. <laughs> no problem. Um, and I'm not going to make them, you know, mutually exclusive, but I'm going to go on the, the greater good side. Um, <laughs> you know, so I talked about equity earlier and the idea that EVs are definitely considered right now. And there's a, a popular opinion that those who own EVs are concerned about the environment, but they're also largely white and wealthy, right? So how do we start to change that equation? How do we start to change that perception? And also how do we take this notion of the green economy and make that feel accessible to everyone on every level? So what's um, I, I, not an endorsement for its electric, but what we're looking to do in the way that we deploy chargers is we are using energy that is already there. We're using a behind the meter approach. So we're basically, instead of connecting our chargers to utility connections in the street and creating that long-term permitting and cost process, we avoid that because we are pulling uh, power from building power that's already there directly from an adjacent building regardless of typology and then we run that by a simple conduit to the sidewalk and to go into equity why would a building let us do this because we are then going to revenue share back to them so right now there's a big pushback that happens in a lot of cities in regards to the notion of gentrification if an ev charger pops up in a neighborhood people feel like there's you know certain assumptions that are being made um, and maybe it's not welcome but if we're able to put up our chargers, especially, you know, only in a city like New York, where I'm calling in from today, only 16% of charging infrastructure is in outer boroughs, where most of rideshare drivers live. So let's talk about the fact that Mayor Adams here in New York City has had the mandate now that both Uber and Lyft have to be all electric by 2030. And whereas those actual rideshare companies are working on the financing mechanisms and the rental mechanisms by which these drivers can drive electric, where are they going to charge? I've seen statistics that say that drivers are losing up to $250 a week in the time that they're taking to find centralized DC fast charging, fast charging stations. And that's a huge amount of money when you're a rideshare driver. So you know, part of what we're looking to do is to put in chargers in neighborhoods and on the blocks where rideshare drivers already live so that they can basically charge where they park, right? So their habits are the same. They don't have to add different layers of context uh, to their routines. And what we can do is with a charger in these neighborhoods, we can help offset by our calculations. If a single charger is utilized just 20% of the day, that house that we're pulling power from, and this is level two, just to speak to Stephen's point earlier, it's not level three. So we're not using 10,000 light bulbs. We're using closer to an electric dryer's load of energy. Yeah. Um, you know, So we have that charger running just 20% of the day. We're offsetting, let's say one or two families home's annual electric bill by 80%. And that's a huge difference in the pockets of New Yorkers. So there's a whole opportunity out there in terms of how to leverage the green economy for every everyday individuals, for everyday citizens, and not just on a high level business and, and, and government level. And just before I hand it off to Steven, so use kind of New York and the five boroughs as an example here. 
and thinking about equity, access, and availability of the ubiquity of electric charging stations. It's very, you, if you were to overlay a map of the ubiquity or availability of micromobility to what we're talking about with EV charging stations and clusters in certain boroughs in New York or in other areas and a lack of access to more of the outer boroughs or other areas, these are opportunities for cities like Stephen was saying to uh, you know, basically reinforce uh, behavioral change. And for the greater good of the, the, you know, the theme of this question is looking at these, let's say, you know, EV charging deserts or micromobility deserts yes. and trying to stimulate or encourage investment in these areas to uh, achieve these policy goals. I think it's really key. That's certainly from my own perspective. I know you guys are the panelists, but uh, I wanted to lay in my own uh, you know, opinion because I think that's, that's important too. But Stephen, what are your yeah. thoughts on how do we leverage electrification and or autonomy for the greater good? Oh, I, I, I well, the, the, uh, Tia did tempt fates, uh, but it's, uh, first it's like really good to share a platform with New York. I was I was born in the hospital my parents met in in Manhattan. So it's like, it's a special place to me. Uh, I'll be there in a month. I'll be there in a month and see, and see people there. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll tempt it by going kind of towards like how you actually build the business case for, for autonomy and for uh, automation in, in charging and building that up over time. Uh, we in Clean Energy City is really kind of, really kind of say like the data needs to be available to build up an energy system that works the greater good when renewable energy is being used, when it's being, uh, is being used uh, and, and you have a clean energy system in the future. And one of those is to build a local energy market that works. So our sister company, Crack and Flex, which is a utility flexibility software uh, company, they uh, did a project with Innovate UK, which is a, a uh, which is a government-owned entity that promotes innovation and business in the UK with grants. And what they did is they produced a local energy market platform that looked at if you have bidirectional charging or heat pumps or PVs on your, on your homes, you might be signing up to a tariff that is dynamic in the future that kind of peaks when it's most expensive in the evening, because that's the most expensive wholesale rates that we have in the energy system. And it's cheaper when there's a lot of renewable energy system in the daytime or cheaper when there's less demand in, in the evening. And, with, and when they thought that the behavior change that would come out of this or people there that had these kinds of compliant tariffs would, uh, would result in a, a 40 million a year savings for the local energy system. And that translates to 30, million pound, uh, 30 pounds a year for the average uh, utility bill for everyone. So it's almost like, everyone saved on uh, the reinforcement costs of upgrading the electricity grid for transport just from people signing up to these kinds of tariffs and their behavior change of using uh, of, of charging their their vehicles when they're uh, when it's cheaper uh, for instance and taking that pressure off the grid at those at those peak times they also found there was about four and a half billion pounds of investments in charging, and in, in the building stock into PVs and to heat pumps in, in, inside the building stock that, uh, and 2 billion of which uh, wouldn't have happened otherwise without having these kinds of, this local energy market platform. And that was over the course of the next 15 years. So there's, there's these examples of actually building up the kind of, uh, kind of tariffs that people voluntarily sign up to to save them money and save the planets as well. 
and 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 also also thinking about you know what happens behind the meter as well and we're actually developing a project with Techland advocates and trying to find a test bed within London with the commercial real estate sector uh, where their solar rooftop investments can be redirected towards EV charging on the streets and kind of turn off the connection to the grids and turn on a private connection to that building. Uh, and because what happens right now is there's a lot of what's called curtailment of renewable energy, where the network says we cannot accept any more export into the grid. Please turn off all of your solar panels, not even to your building, so we can ensure the stability of the grid. In a place like Arizona, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory uh, found that about 14% of their uh, electricity capacity could be covered by solar, but about 10% of that solar is curtailed right now. And that's a very, you know, compared to low uptake to what we want in the future, where we want that number to be in the 70s and 80%. So this problem will increase more and more. And we know that ESG commitments of corporates is really pushing for buildings to start to build solar power onto, onto buildings to kind of as, as an investment to meet their sustainability goals. So this is accelerating more and more. And we know there's an opportunity to have EVs being, you know, EVs in commercial areas of cities to have cheap charging because these buildings are some, suddenly getting something for nothing uh, because before they were getting nothing from it before. So we think that there's models like this uh, that can be tested in, especially in kind of into really dense cities that have congested grids in the future. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you for sharing that uh, perspective on you know the theme of the greater good and what are the opportunities there. So kind of our final question, I think we might have time to have all you guys um, give your thoughts on that. Uh, we're a little ahead of schedule here. So um, this is a little bit more at the city level now. Um, and the question, I'll field this to Jennifer first, is can we strengthen public transport and urban design to create a paradigm shift in the sector. Thank you, Scott. Um, and I'd actually like to start on the urban design part first and, and add a few uh, kind of framing statistics, if you will. Uh, so cities and urban areas are responsible for 70% of carbon emissions, 75% of natural resource use, um, and a lot of the emerging cities that we're seeing around the globe are happening in so-called biodiversity hotspots. So if anyone wondered why an organization like WWF is in a call like this, it's because the connection between urban areas and nature is, is very real um, and it's, it's more complex every day. Um, I also like that Tia brought up uh, the aspect of equity. Um, and what we've also seen looking at cities around the world is between 40 to 60 percent of cities, uh, the public space in cities is dedicated to cars in the form of roads and highways and parking lots. So uh, at WWF, uh, we'd like to see now, of course, this is a bit idealistic, um, but that's that's my role here um, is, you know, what kind of urban design we'd like to see streets for people in nature. So I have this great graphic that sometimes I use and it's a, it's a city in London and you roll out a green carpet and you green the walls and you, know, you bring out the people and the nature into the, the public space as well as the cars. And so I think this is one of the things that we're talking about is really how can we create these shared spaces uh, for people. But still, mobility is a key aspect of our lives. And I think something we really missed uh, when we were all locked away in, in COVID. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, the, the role of public transportation is extremely relevant here, uh, as well as biking, as well as walking, as well as having your own uh, electric vehicle, uh, etc. So I think um, I'm going to just 
bring one point in that, that Stephen also mentioned, and that's uh, behavior change. Um, and I, we are launching a, a new report from WWF to work with local policymakers on behavior change tactics, in particular looking at transportation, uh, as well as on urban food consumption, um, and kind of what can local city leaders do to help um, push people in a more positive direction. And I think one of the things that you always see in the behavior change literature is if you want to get people to use public transportation, it has to be safe. It has to be affordable. It has to be frequent. It has to be close. It needs to be clean. Um, without any of those aspects, I think it's it's a real difficulty to get uh, to really encourage anyone but the kind of hardcore tree huggers uh, to get on the bus and or people that don't have any other option. And we don't want it to be that, okay, you have no other option, so you have to get on the bus. I think there's a great uh, quote from the former mayor of uh, Bogota uh, saying that, you know, um, a rich city is where people choose to use public transportation. And I think this is something that we need to flip the script that that should be the preferred alternative. And then if you have to use a car, that's also okay. And especially, you know, for further distances or depending on what you're carrying, I mean, I I'm not car anti-car, but I'm pro-people uh, and pro-nature, of course. Um, so I think that's sort of what I would see as an ideal shift and how to link in urban design to public transportation and to have the people aspect included. Well said. No, you hit some great things here. I, we're running out of time, so I can't add myself. So, um, but uh, Stephen, maybe just one or two minutes, your thoughts, and then Tia as well, too, so we can get your perspectives on this question, then we'll start wrapping up. Uh, Jennifer, your, your comment about the rich uh, on public transport is a sign of a great city that I think in the UK, they always use a meme of Paul McCartney sitting on a, on a train to, for, for that. I think people have seen that a few times. Uh, first, on the, public, on the public transport side of things, electric bus networks is a huge part of investment, which is being promoted by, and especially in the global south and kind of cities that, that try to have a first move that we can recommend within clean energy cities. Uh, for example, the uh, the C40 climate finance uh, uh, facility uh, is investing about 30 has, has about 30 million investment that is that is happening in, in across uh, cities. Uh, for example, in Jakarta, they built a case study where we actually uh, looked at it for the connected places catapults in the UK to see how can, uh, emerging markets are actually using uh, using using renewable energy effectively in the future. Uh, one of the difficulties they have is that the district really gets put under pressure by kind of fast charging of electric buses because we're talking about 450 kilowatts as opposed to kind of as kind of as the gold standard to be able to to charge uh, charge buses in the future and then you have to start really start asking from an equity point of view a lot of kind of different favors of turn down of heating or turn out of the air conditioning in the surrounding area to allow the bus depot to function as sufficiently as it, as uh, as efficiently as it as it could so those are kind of problems that they're already starting to encounter after kind of investing into a fleet of 8 then a fleet of 80 over the past uh, over the past 10 years in in, in places like london uh, if you total up all the commitments from the 33 boroughs of London, you'll find out that 60% of streets are designated for EV charging, because that's the make up the, the, you know, the deficit that we have of off streets, uh, parking and charging that will uh, be there. That's a huge investment opportunity uh, across the across the sector, uh, but also a huge challenge of how it's being used uh, at, at the time and how actually people can use use automation effectively. Uh, in, in the future. And that, that's the effect, of, of course, on the urban design uh, of the place, because we have this paradox uh, that I want to close with, 
that we've been trying to remove clutter and remove thing, you know, street furniture. We've been trying to remove uh, things from uh, from footpaths and, and, and sidewalks uh, of streets. And now we're talking about, oh, because we want to balance the energy system, the energy grid inside the congested areas of cities, we want to put all this back in uh, to allow EV charging to happen. And we need to recognize this paradox which is starting to emerge, which gets pointed out. It's going kind to of every single time. Like it, these are the places the highest pressure onto everything in the city: people walking, space, uh, uh, um, and 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 of course, like the electricity grid are all kind of wrapped up in the same in in the same area. No surprise that the city's uh, city uh, is under pressure in the same area for lots of different reasons. Conflicting goals and aims, yes. So we'll uh, give uh, Tia kind of the last uh, take on your perspective related to this question, then we'll wrap up. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. Do you mind repeating the question? I just want to reframe oh, sure, it no a problem. little bit. Um, so can we strengthen public transport and urban design to create a paradigm shift? Is it possible? And what would what, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Um, um, as I mentioned, I cycle a lot in New York City, but most of my cycling is done on city bike. I think that the transformation that city bike has created in a city like New York has been um, astounding. Um, as someone who <laughs> has cycled in New York City uh, for 25 years and has been hit by cars several times, you know, the idea that even we would have dedicated bike lanes in a city like New York 15 years ago was, was unfathomable. Um, so the fact that we have made this transition because of the vision and the leadership that we had during the Bloomberg administration and continues to be developed through the power of the DOT and other sort of um, benefactors of Clean transportation in New York City has been incredible. Um, so for me, you know, it's from the next shift that I think we would need to really consider, which is already starting to happen, is thinking about the users more of public transportation. And I, I wish I had some statistics around this um, because we really plan around a single user in terms of modality when we're thinking about public transportation in cities. Uh, and now that's starting to shift. So for example, New York City buses now allow for parents to bring strollers onto the buses without collapsing them, which is a really obviously smart move because if you have a stroller, you are usually burdened with not only the child that's in the stroller, but your packages, your groceries, your and anything else that you can really jam in there. And the idea that to get on the bus, you have to unload all of that, collapse the stroller, carry the child, carry all those packages and the stroller onto the bus, is really is really daunting. So, you know, it's moves like that that can really help make public transportation not only more accessible, but more desirable to be used by the public. And that also leads me to think about, you know, individual modes of modality in terms of how to move families around cities. It's not just moving the individual. Um, I think uh, there's a great company out of the Netherlands called We with an exclamation point at the end. And they have a family cargo bike subscription model, which I would love to see something like that come to Brooklyn. Because the number one factor that moves people into vehicles is usually when they start to have families because they need to then be able to safely transport their children. So how do we make the transport of children a key factor for cities in their consideration? And so that's something that I really like to think about uh, and really like to imagine as, as, as new modes of possibility. I'm not saying that we have to have these major shifts where we have, you know, you know, autonomous driverless mini cars that are constantly moving around dedicated you know routes and 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 monorail systems there can be smaller shifts that can happen that can make public transportation a lot more uh useful especially for for parents and for working parents 
Less robo taxis, more uh, shared cargo bike subscriptions. Uh, we, they're based in Oslo, Norway, so I know them. Thank um, you. Okay. Great, great, great platform, great offer. Mm -hmm. And incremental change and something that's much more locally based and aligned with tactical urbanism and things that are DIY that we can all do together. So yeah. with that, uh, we'll close out. So um, thank you, Tia. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Stephen. And thank you, everyone, for joining. Um, we're really excited to have everyone here today on our first episode. So look for this in all of our episodes on social media. Um, I'll share links for Tia, Jennifer, Stephen, where you can find them, um, as well as where you can uh, you know, follow up for you know, any Q&A or any other deep dives. But again, I'm really um, excited about this topic and uh, hope to have you guys again soon, maybe for part two or another topic. So it's, it's been a real pleasure and an honor to have you here today. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. All right. And, and thank you, everyone. And look for our next episode. We'll pivot back to the city's first podcast, not webinar, in May. And we have some exciting guests. Um, we kind of alternate between US, UK and uh, Europe. And we'll continue with our theme of cities first. So thank you, everyone. Thank you.